a lot of maps are quite cold. There are maps like the map of the islands of New Zealand or a road map. And I think all of these are held up as the truth, but I think they're actually quite false or that they don't quite fit our experience. And what would a better version of a map look like or a richer version of a map? A richer version of a map would be a poem. Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open. This podcast is a project of the open book at 201 Ponsonby Road, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop. Today we have the great pleasure of having Michaela Curtis with us. She is a poet, an academic and a letterpress printer. Hello and welcome. Tēnā Anna Inna, That's Gaelic for, for good evening. Not for anything unpleasant. Nothing for anything unpleasant. <laughs> what, so why Gaelic? Um, it's one of the only words I know of Gaelic, but it's sort of a connection to Scotland. Um, my family don't speak any Gaelic. They haven't spoken Gaelic for generations, but it's um, it's a nice way of connecting to the land through language. Which is something that's obviously very important to Definitely. you. And is going to come up as we wander through. In fact, what a beautiful segue into my first question, which is about maps and poems in your work. So I noticed as I read um, some of the poems that you sent me, which thank you for sending me, uh, that there's a lot of maps and also a lot of writing about poetry. So not just poems, but writing about poetry. And I felt like you were referring a lot to human artifice. So the, the making of things in an attempt to make sense of the world, which uh, maps are our simplified version of where we are and poems are a version of what we are or what we see. So what do you think about this practice in your work and the surfacing of artifice in your writing? Well, I'm definitely really interested in the artifice of a poem and of language and of how poems work. In the series I'm currently working on, I'm especially interested in maps and creative cartography. But I think poetry is a kind of map. Poetry um, and poems are places that we get to explore ourselves and places that we get to explore our own experience and the worlds we live in. And I say worlds, pluralised as well, because I think we inhabit places in different ways and in different places. And you've got a line that says, but here I map an inclination towards and against the map, which speaks to me of both liking to describe something and write it down and capture it, and also wanting to move away from that and saying it's always more complicated than this is. Is that what you were getting at there, or was it something quite different? No, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. I think that in that particular line I'm also thinking about the artifice of the map that we think of as a, as a truth. And I think that a lot of maps are quite cold. There are maps like the map of the islands of New Zealand or a road map. And I think all of these are held up as the truth, but I think they're actually quite false or that they don't quite fit our experience. And what would a better version of a map look like or a richer version of a map? A richer version of a map would be a poem. Not so helpful if you're lost in the woods, though, right? I don't know. I think a poem's probably a great thing if you're lost in the woods. I think it depends on where you want to go if you're trying to use maps for going places. But I tend to think of maps as records of our experience. Right. Um, okay. 
I was reading to my son tonight um, these books called Bunny versus Monkey, which are basically crazy violent cartoons set in a forest where monkey is constantly trying to sort of attack the other animals with ridiculous inventions. And they also feature kakapo, which is extremely odd because they're not New Zealand forests. But... Monkey is on an adventure with Skunky and they get lost and Skunky says, well, thank goodness I've also lost the map because otherwise we might not be going in the right direction. <laughs> and I felt like that had a sort of a, a, a Michaela, Michaela Curtis kind of ring to it, you know, that if we take the map away, then we can go in whatever direction we wish to. Yeah, definitely. I think part of, I guess, I'm, I look at maps not as something necessarily... Um, always for our future, although sometimes they can be, um, but as something as getting to know our environment that we're in. Um, so yeah, if we lose a map, we can make a new one. And so you had a poem which was obviously very mappy called um, Cartographies 1 and Best New Zealand Poems 2017. So congratulations. That was exciting, I imagine. Very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. So if anyone's looking for that, you just need to Google Best New Zealand Poems 2017. And the poem towards the end asks shall we map our footsteps not the heel toe imprint but the rubble of our way and as I was reading it I thought about Wallace Stevens and his poem Anecdote of the Jar which I think about quite a lot in terms of art and artifice and what it does to the world around us and in that poem his jar the jar is sitting on a hill and it sort of turns the wilderness into something that isn't wilderness by existing as a as a created object there it speaks about the relationship of humans to the natural world and what we do just by existing in the natural world so I wondered do you think that we can exist without creating rubble as we go or is that part of the human condition and what interests you about that the pessimist in me says that we can't live in the world without rubble yeah the idealist in me says we can and so what do you say to the pessimist how do you convince the pessimist to keep rubbling on I, I don't know. I think sometimes it's um, easier to, to ignore both aspects of that um, and to, to sort of live our lives um, without thinking of that. But And yet when you write, you have to. You have to. I guess when you start thinking about things, which is what you're doing when you're writing, you can't not think about how you interact with the world um, and interact with the things we make. And so much of that is stuff we don't want. I'm scared of becoming a hoarder. I don't think I will, but it scares me to throw things in the rubbish, not because I want to keep them, but because I know they're going in a skip. They're going to end up in the land. And if I don't want them, why would it be appropriate for it to be in the land? And so I end up being annoyed that we've made this thing at all. Um, But in the meantime, I'm a maker of things myself. So it's a really tough space to be in I think and if you judge others making of things you start to judge your own making of things don't you I mean you can say well this is clearly a piece of plastic crap and what I am making is a beautiful work of art but in the end it's all the same that's right do the carbon molecules care not really right Mm. and how do you how does your writing help you reconcile that or help you exist alongside that it definitely enables me to explore both aspects of my thinking of of making but at the same time it actually creates more problems because I keep making things so I'm not sure if it solves a a question or if it just asks more and what's your journey as a printer and as a writer how have you got to doing letterpress printing and what does doing this really physical act sort of talk to you about 
in your own writing and in your practice? I became interested in printmaking when I was living in Edinburgh in Scotland um, and I did some training in relief and uh, dry point at Edinburgh Printmakers and I have to say there's something... And what brought you there? Did you just wander through the door one day or... I don't the, remember. What's the beginning like, of that story? I don't know what the beginning... I think the beginning of that is impossible to find. There'll be some gem somewhere, I'm sure, that perhaps if I really examine my memory as hard as I can, I might find it. But I think, you know, ultimately I've always been interested in words and there's a lot of visual things that I love and I couldn't tell you when I started loving those things. But at some point, printmaking turned up and it may have been that it turned up much earlier than that. But that was the first time I got to get my hands into it. Um, And so I learnt how to do that there. And when I came home... And what were those techniques that you learnt? Tell us a little bit about those. Um, So that's etching and um, relief. So relief is like lino cuts and woodcuts. Yeah. Um, I loved, I loved etching. Um, It was so easy to sort of make a line and know I could reproduce the same line. How does etching work for our listeners? So etching, and for me, who doesn't know? Um, etching is, um, I mean, there's multiple ways of doing etching, but the way that I have done it mostly is with um, a plastic plate that you use a um, very sharp point to um, gouge out lines. And when you gouge out those lines, you then push ink into those lines and rub the ink away from around the outside of it. Um, and then you press it onto good quality wet paper that are draws that ink out of those oh okay so does the paper go into the scratches if I can say scratches um um, or does the ink come out of the scratches the ink ink, it may be a bit of both but largely the ink comes out of the scratches so it's not a sort of embossing thing it's I mean you might get some effect of that but that's not the right general goal right yeah um other ways that you can do it rather than scratching is um, chemical etching as well and various other methods of etching which I haven't been able to try and so who etches etchings people I feel like I'm about to say come upstairs and see my etchings but (laughs) (laughs) come into my bookshop and see my etchings etchings people might be familiar with is that a technique um what's her name Kate Colwitz used she was she you familiar with her work no I'm not Lucien Freud is probably one of the most famous etching artists and of course you know Leonardo da Vinci and right that lot all certainly did etchings it's, it's an old technique. It's a technique that's been around for a very long time. Unlike, I mean, it's been around longer than letterpress printing, for example. Right, so you learnt these two techniques and did some etching. You came home. Yeah, I came home and I went to Motat, which is... As we all do of a rainy do. day. Um, but, <laughs> but more specifically because that Motat's always been a home for me. It's My dad drives the trams there and I've been going there since I was just a wee bairn, really. So... I was there, and since I had been gone, the print shop had been set up again. They had a new team leader, a guy called Graham O'Keefe. And before that, it had closed down. Like, it had been running very well during the 70s. Um, And for whatever reason, the people weren't there. And so when I got back, Graham O'Keefe had set it up with these wonderful people and had all the machines going, and I just walked in there and went, I've got to be part of this. Been working with them for about six, seven years now. So what actually happens in the print shop at Motat? You you walk in on a Sunday morning and... Clutching your cup of coffee or whatever, and, and then what happens next? Um, well, the team I work with, who are at least half of them, are retired machinists um, who worked on Heidelberg machines primarily through their careers. 
And we stand around talking, or they stand around talking for ages. I hate me saying that, but they do. Before we suddenly decide to start doing some work. And a lot of the time I have in mind what I want to work on. I'm, I'm the only compositor in the team. So what um, does that mean? Compositing is placing together those small bits of metal type to create the words, lock them up and get them ready for printing. And it's definitely my favourite thing in the print shop is working with that type, getting it together um, and preparing it. Does it feel similar to writing a poem? No. What does it feel like? It's nothing like writing a poem. It's like one of the things I really enjoy about it is that it's very meditative. You can really calm down while you're doing it. There's a certain speed you can get up to and that's about it. And you've got to focus. When you pull out each piece of type, you've got to check it's the right piece. You've got to look for um, the little groove or the nick um, to make sure you've got your piece of type up the right way. You're also, in the back of your mind, making sure that it is the right typeface because people could have put it back in the wrong drawer. And then at the same time, you're thinking quite closely about the poem you're reading in a way that is so different from writing and is also so different from reading from a book because you're thinking about each individual word and the letters that make up each individual word. And then you start making connections between those words in a very small space and moving outwards through the poem. So you're looking at it like under a microscope, each tiny little part. You start thinking about how the representation of the word that's in that poem, just the visual representation, and whether or not that adds something to what's being said in the poem. And so when you come away from having said a poem, you've been closer to that poem than you have to any other poem. It's something quite special, I think. It's different to any other experience I have with poetry, for sure. Oh, that sounds amazing. I feel like you're probably going to convert people to come along and knock on the door and say, I want to composite. <laughs> Let me composite. Well, you can only composite if you're going to diss, which is putting it all away again. Ah, discomposite. That's the one. Right. And that is less fun? Uh, yeah, it's less fun. If you're good at it, you can get quite fast, but it's still less fun. And what about choosing a typeface? So you read a poem, you want to set it, and then how do you decide what is going to be right? Well, there are only so many typefaces for me to choose. It's not the same as working on a piece of design. Is there Comic Sans? There's no Comic Sans. I have no Comic Sans. Someone might, but I don't, and I'm not looking out for it either. The type we have the most of at Motet is Garamond, um, and that's because it was gifted to us by Massey University when they shut down their print room. Um, We've got 14 point right up to 36 in bold regular and italic it's a lot of type so if I haven't thought too hard about it or if I've got a lot of text to put together it's going to be Garamond and luckily Garamond is a beautiful typeface Mm, everybody's favorite right well it's certainly one of mine we've got a couple of sans serif typefaces and what would make you think oh maybe sans serif for this Sometimes it's just because I've been sitting for too long in Garamond. I just can't look at another <laughs> serif. I just can't bear it, she cried. Um, I'm not sure, actually. It's the same kind of... When I decide on the paper I'm going to use or the colours I want to use, I'm not sure how much I analyse those decisions. I sort of keep that meditative thing going, I guess, and just sort of go with my gut. But at the same time, there's so much of a because you're turning it into a visual thing or you're thinking about it in such a visual way, there have definitely been times that I have said something, gone, that's not right, and dusted it and started again. And I've printed on the wrong paper before, started printing it and gone, this paper's not right, I have to do something else. And is that a little bit like writing a poem? 
Yeah, in that regard, that is. Yeah, you know, you don't know quite what you're doing, but you know when you're not doing it right. Yeah, and you know when you're going. Oh, yeah, this is actually heading in the right direction. We'll get there. Yeah, I think that's. So the artistic instinct, if we can give it that name, (laughs) comes into play in that piece of the work. Um, I failed to ask you to read a poem at the beginning. Yes, you surprised me, and I I had to move all the bits of paper away. You should have said, "Oi." You didn't ask me to read a poem. Well, it's clearly my... you were too excited about other things. Oh, well, so I was, fine. obviously. But um, why don't you read this poem now? Okay, right. Well, you mentioned um, the poem E Whakamahere Ana earlier, um, so I'll read that one. Which was the line I quoted from that one? Was that the, but here I map an inclination towards and against the map? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Great. So, so listeners and Michaela, I apologise for my poor hosting of this episode of the I thought podcast. you'd just record it and put it. Back in at the beginning. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more like, you know, we're transparent here. We like to surface the flaws that have occurred during, <laughs> <laughs> during the recording. E whakamahere ana. Prevailing land to remember the literature, the maps near maps. The neighbouring memories lending lies to the graphic of the sea. A taxonomy of memory placed into the metaphoric appropriation of the map with cartographic products issuing tools between a cognitive text and the go-between. Where the line indicates direction, the line indicates obstruction. The review of the thumb mark is a circular and ridged hillside. The charcoal line thickening at the breadth of the seaside The charcoal line thickening as the carbon pencil cracks and flakes away. Surveyors devise a truthiness that is commissioned by rules. The table holds up the map that impersonates the land. But here I map an inclination towards and against the map. There is a liaison networked in the line top-down, cross-hatched alps and a stiff coloration of the sea. Tuki guides us across an unrecognisable map of this now white place, this canoe and beached fish that we live off. Tuki guides us through a first map, an interior tribal instruction for the dead to make their way back, not for us now, but for making memory for the future. Thank you, that's great. I, I've got a question about culture and language, but before we get on to that, I want to ask you about the word truthiness. Yes. Talk to me about the word truthiness. Well, I'm fairly sure it's a neologism. I've heard it before. I've heard it used Well, they're in... not my neologism. No, but it's a recent word. What... what... What was the urge to put that in there for you? Well, I talked earlier about the idea that these maps claim to be the truth, but aren't necessarily so. And I think that that is a truthiness. So it has that idea of the truth, but isn't necessarily... The feel of authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, the context I've heard it in before is... um, I do a lot of nerdy listening to American policy and politics podcasts as I do the chores of an evening at home. And they talk about this one in particular called The Weeds, which is a really amazing podcast if you're into policy. Um, and they talk about truthiness as opposed to truthfulness, meaning how easily something is kind of accepted by people as true, mm-hmm. as opposed to whether it actually bears any relationship to reality or not. And they talk about the truthiness of a lot of things that Trump 
says, for example, where people think, oh, yes, that's, you know, not everyone, but some people think, oh, yes, of course. And, in fact, if you sort of unpack it, it's not that at all. And I guess you've mentioned, you've mentioned Tookie's map yeah. there, which is that famous map of New Zealand done. I adore that map. It's amazing, right? And for listeners who don't know it, if you Google Tookie's map, T-U-K-I, you will find it. Now, am I right in thinking he was on Captain Cook's ship, or have I got the wrong end of the stick there? He was definitely on a ship. It was probably Cook's ship. And the I map looks quite different than it's how so we different. view the map of New Zealand mm. now. So talk to us about that a little bit. One of my favourite things about it, which is probably shouldn't be a favourite thing, but the South Island's only the very top of it. And this, it looks so small. But in addition to that, the key thing about this map seems to me to be the route for Wairua. Once someone has died, their Wairua travels up the island um, to Cape Prianga, according to some iwi, definitely not to others. But there's always a jumping-off point. And so this is the map that Tuki knows for when he dies. And I think it's not necessarily that I'm saying, because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Pākehā, and so I'm definitely not, I don't have this belief for myself or some other way of putting it. I'm sure there's a better way of putting that, but... What I'm interested in is how differently he sees the world from how we're all told about it today in school. Um, And I'm sure um, from hearing people tell me about what their iwi sees as the trip after death and how the land we know is so involved in that trip is so interesting to me um, to think about that different ways of looking at our the, way we, the, the place we live in. And what uh, iwi and what part of the country was he from? And my guess would be up north, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I what I know about that map is it's sort of a great example of how our perspective is about where we start from. Yeah. You know, and so he doesn't, he's not a South Islander, barely even yeah, exists exactly. from his point of view, yeah. right? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting thing to bring in. And then... I mean, maps are such political actions, aren't they? Definitely. If you yeah. even you look at the coloration of maps traditionally, yep. or you look at the different projections of maps, you look at the Peters projection that gives you a whole different view of how big different parts mm-hmm. of the world are compared to others. They are not at all neutral layings even, out of how the world is. Even just where we decide the shoreline stops is in and of itself this strange truth it's is it a truth it can't be a truth because it changes and how much of the beach do we include how much of the foreshore is included as the land um and and you know as as Māori quite rightly say it goes way out the land is much further than where we can no longer keep our feet on the ground as we move out into the water yeah there's lots of ways to be thinking about the land and it's really wonderful to take or be given or look at ideas from Te Ao Māori about the land, because I think that's where we can learn the most. And so the question I was then going to ask you, as you said earlier, your family's cultural roots are in Scotland, and that comes into your work. And your work definitely also engages with Te Reo and Te Ao Māori. What do you gain from these cultural engagements, or what's the interest for you in reaching into or engaging with those cultures? Yeah, so um, my mum was born in Scotland and a few generations back my father's family were all from Scotland as well, all from the lowlands. Um, oh. Still Scottish, <laughs> still Scottish. My family's from the highlands. Whatevs, whatevs. And I've lived there as well. I lived in Scotland for about um, three and a half years. And I don't think I understood how people can feel so connected 
or I didn't understand how people could feel so connected to the land until I got there and spent some time travelling around in Scotland and catching up with family that I hadn't seen for a long time or hadn't met before. And then when I got back to New Zealand, I realised that that connection was something that was alive for me here as well. Um, And it wasn't until I had left that I could acknowledge that connection. And so I ended up being so interested in that space. Do you mean the connection to Scotland was still alive, although you were here, or the connection to New Zealand was alive, but you hadn't recognised it until you'd left New Zealand? Both. Yeah. So a lot of the poems where I start looking at language as a connection to the land is where I start thinking about the fact that te reo is the connection to the land here, or it's it's a way of being able to engage with the land, I guess on its own terms, because it's not, it's not up to me. It's about that language, and I, when I started learning it, that was when I started thinking about Scotland more. So I felt that connection when I got there, but when I came back and started learning te reo, I started thinking about what that connection meant. And how do you feel as a Pākehā learner of te reo and a user of te reo in your work? How do I feel? I feel lucky, I guess. I feel cautious. And I have to keep in mind why I'm learning it. And why are you learning it? Well, one, of course, I've mentioned that connection. But another is about having a way to uphold tetiriti from where I sit. And my interest and my skills are in language. So being able to support te reo Māori is a way that I can do that. I'm definitely not fluent in any way, shape or form. I can read better than I can uh, speak and I think that's mostly down to fear. But um, what I can do with that is support others learning and I can support poetry in Māori. And in particular, that interest has led me to create a typecase for compositing in Māori. So that is incredible. Talk to us about that. Well, when Colenso arrived in New Zealand in 1834, there had been a previous printer, but we won't dignify him with any comment. Gosh, the salacious podcast will have to come back to him <laughs> another time. Not yes. worth it. Not much of a printer. Okay. Um, so Colenso was really our first printer who, who showed up here. And when he arrived, he had some rudimentary Māori, and he knew he didn't need his whole load of type because he'd been instructed to print the Bible in Māori. And also when he arrived, he wasn't given any typecases. He also wasn't given a, a comping stone. He wasn't given all kinds of things he didn't have. He had a press, he had the type. Um, the only reason he had a comping stick is because he bought his own. What's a comping stone and a comping stick? So the stone is a very flat surface for you to work on. Um, it's really important that it's very flat and was one of the reasons why the previous printer was so rubbish. But the comping stick is the tool that you hold in your hand while you that you put your type into. So when he got here, he designed typecases for the Māori language. But he designed them in an upper and lower case, which is what was ten- tended to be used at the time. And they're great, and they're a wonderful resource, and I wish we knew what happened to the originals. We know that he took them to Gisborne when he um, left... The, the, um, when he stopped being a printer, um, but we don't know what happened to them after that. Sounds like the title of a novel, The Lost Type of Colenso. 
Type case. Don't the get confused. The lost type case of Kalinzo. Right. When I talk about this, I often have people think I have designed a Māori type face, and I definitely have not. Right. I've definitely designed a type case, and so it's only if you see something that I have used to um, use the type case for to print, you can't tell that that's what I've done. It's about the ease of printing and So and talk us through this, because I'm, I'm looking at you with a blank face. Think of your keyboard on your computer, and it's laid out in QWERTY. It's not laid out in, as an alphabet. And it's laid out so that it's easy for you to press the buttons. And well, it's actually laid out so it's a bit difficult for me to press the buttons wow. so my typewriter doesn't jam, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Well, the typecase is set up so that where you're standing, the pieces you use the most are central, and the ones you use less are further, apart, further away and in smaller boxes. Okay, so you've rearranged where everything's sitting so that you can go faster by finding things quicker that you use more often. Yes, and I got rid of all the letters we don't use in Māori, and I got some new type cast with macrons, and they've got a space in the case. Okay. Because Colenso didn't want pieces with macrons. He didn't want to have extra sorts, which is sorts being the the term for um, the letters in the case. He wanted to just use the doubles, the double letters. But we don't, obviously in some areas that's, that's more common, but I wanted a typecase that could be used for all dialects. Um, and I have been able to use it a few times. Vaughan Rapatahana gave me a poem to set, which was, yeah, that was a real treat to be able to do. And it makes a huge difference, particularly with letters like the K, which is normally in this tiny little box off to the side, and it's got a much bigger space in my, my typecase. Wow, and so once you've designed the typecase, do you then need to build it or does someone build it for you? Like, how does this happen? Well, Colenso got someone to build them for him. Yes. But I took um, an existing job case, so an existing California job case, which is what most people use throughout New Zealand and uh, most English-speaking countries, because I wanted it to be a job case rather than the upper and lower that Colenso had designed. Job cases have both upper and lower in the same case, which is what we tend to use today. And so I wanted one of those, and I went to it with some probably inappropriate tools and ripped out the parts I didn't want and sanded sanded it down, and I got what I needed. Yeah, so it's not a conventional case, so I did make adjustments, but I used the basic case as a starting point. Yeah. Great. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. Well, I have learned a lot today in this conversation now is there anything else that you wanted to share that was around these questions or anything else that we haven't quite got to I feel like we didn't get anywhere near visual poetry which is something that's really interesting poetry because you brought in some examples of things you'd printed out yeah I brought what I've brought in was um, a couple of zines that I made about mapping and creative cartography and also a little collection of poems that have been shaped into boxes that encourage you to read them in different ways. But I'm also interested in asemic writing and handwriting. I don't even know what asemic writing so it's is. writing without semantic sense. So it looks like writing. It has all the feel and the material of writing, but it's not writing. My two-year-old is very good at that. Yes, two-year-olds are very she good is, at asemic writing. Not all of them. My four-year-old is terrible at it, but my two-year-old does. And she writes appointments in my diary for me. Oh, perfect. It's yes. pretty great. I think that 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 urge to want to write and to communicate on the page 
is in and of itself something that's very interesting. And so I find that visual cue of writing, whether or not it's ended up being writing, really interesting. Um, and I designed about five different asymmetric typefaces that you can use on your computer, which ended up being like code, because of course you're still pressing you know, the A and the B and so on. But quite fun. I based one of them on uh, Cy Twombly. Right. In what way did you base him on Cy Twombly? Well, the general forms or shapes of his fantastic asymmetric writing paintings. And how do you use these? I used them in a couple of zines when I made them, and I haven't really used them much since, but I wish I did. And in terms of your writing that does have semantic content <laughs> and the visual organisation of that, what what does organisation on the page add to what you're doing in your writing, do you think? In some ways it's about the visual feel of what a poem looks like on the page, but a lot of the time I think about it as instruction on how to read it, so I think I think about those two things quite differently. So the organize, the physical organisation is semantic as well? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, it's so interesting, and yet you quite like reading your poetry too, and I do. but you lose that aspect of it, or if you I, are already following those instructions, so people just have to listen and they'll pick them up. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I it's sort of actually saying that I remember I wrote a poem for my grandfather when he died, and at his funeral I couldn't read it. I I couldn't I couldn't get a single word out, and so the priest or whatever he was. I don't think he was a priest. My grandfather's not religious. The, the officiating yeah. person. Um, yes. he, he took it from me and, and read it for me. And I remember thinking afterwards how pleased I was at how he had read it and went back and looked at my line lengths and the punctuation and realised I had already told him how to read it. He'd never read it for me before. He didn't know I was going to ask him to read it but it had worked out. And so that was what helped me realise that I can instruct people how to read the poem using those tools. Wow, that is a really great story. Is there another poem that you would like to read us to close? Sure. Waterlines. My throat looks west and south like two clouds. It marks the move from point A to point B. The oar reaches in, pushes at our debris, and climbs the chanting impositions. Each water stroke leads us further through a network. River lines meander across pages. There is a way here, a depth that I cannot draw without layers. A tongue tears home, over and under the sands shudder in speech. The last crossing was a 2B line, then the page will end and my run will cease. A trench so deep I cannot. Black songs down below I cannot feel them in my throat. I cannot stay here. I never arrived at this cleft in the earth, all blue and sea green. A vibration reaching from the cliff, I plant my voice here, the waters wash and wash. Thank you, that was amazing. It's been such a pleasure to have you on, Makaila. Um, Makaila will, by the time you listen to this, will have done a reading at the Open Book, but I think can be visited at MOTAT. Most the, Sundays. Most Sundays in the print workshop. 
And it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we've learned a lot. I certainly have. This has been Ears Wide Open, a podcast which is a project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. If you are in Auckland, come and visit us and buy a book. And if you are not in Auckland, you can subscribe to my book bag and we will send you beautiful books on a regular basis. Thank you.